From Boise, Idaho and Idaho Education News, this is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. And we get to spend uh, the first probably 25 minutes or so of the podcast talking about what I've been doing the past three months, which is kind of exciting for for me anyway, and hopefully it'll be interesting for you all. It's almost arrived, Kevin. The big day is finally here. I'm not talking about Christmas. I'm talking about unveiling your big four-day literacy project that you've been spending months on uh, that's going to roll out at IdahoEdNews.org starting on Monday Monday of next week. Mm -hmm. Uh, running for four days. You've got multiple installments each day. But I guess let's start sort of go back to the beginning. Why is this something that you chose to shine a spotlight on and really devote yourself to the last three or four months? I guess talk to me about the idea of where this came from and what you're hoping to accomplish. Well, I think uh, a lot of it, you know, it came from discussions we've had uh, internally, uh, you and I, but also discussions we've had in, in staff meetings. I mean, we're at a real crossroads here on, on reading in Idaho. I did a series on literacy back in 2016 when the Otter administration launched the literacy yep. initiative that we're now seeing unfold and expand uh, under Governor Brad Little. But as we talked about it this summer, heading into the fall, uh, just a lot of things were happening all at once that made me think that it was time to take another look, a closer look. First of all, you've got all this additional money going into literacy programs in the state, the $26 million that's going out to the schools. They uh, doubled the literacy initiative this last year with the governor and the legislature. Doubled the budget and did something that I don't see happen very often at the state house. You don't see happen very often at the state house. Legislators put a considerable increase of funding into an initiative without really knowing yet how it's going to work. Right. Kind of kind of betting on the idea that the additional funding for literacy is going to help young readers. So you have this this layer of additional funding, taxpayer money going into literacy. You're seeing things like the expansion, really almost a proliferation of all-day kindergarten programs across the state that's a direct offshoot of the literacy initiative and a place where a lot of these literacy dollars are going. You had the governor put together a task force to look at college and career readiness, but also to look at early literacy. And as you watch that task force all all summer into the fall, two of their recommendations directly having to do with early literacy, all-day kindergarten and school accountability based on reading scores. So you had this going on. You had the funding going on. Uh, You will have the legislature come back and look at this issue in January Uh, You'll have Boise State researchers doing a follow-up study on the literacy initiative. That's going to be presented to legislators in January. Just a whole lot of things all kind of coming together at the same time. And it's just sort of, as we talked about projects we should do this year, I just kept coming back to literacy. I just kept coming back to this is the project that we should be working on. This is the project I wanted to work on. This is something that I felt like we needed to to shine a light on so that readers and parents and taxpayers yeah. can understand how this is working and what's working and what you know maybe needs to be worked on and fixed along the way. And the timing, I mean, I got, I got to tell you, um, the timing is just about perfect. Basically arriving here on the eve of the 2020 legislative session where, like you said, we expect a debate over literacy as part of the overall debate 
about budget priorities, about budget realities, and about our education policy package. Uh, it's, in, it's wrapped in with the task force recommendations that were developed all throughout the summer and fall. The timing really could not be more perfect. You sort of joked, but it almost feels like a breaking news series that you spent four months on. It, it really was, because a lot of things happened along the way that we knew were going to happen along the way that kind of made it uh, an interesting project uh, journalistically and logistically. We knew the task force was going to be working until, as it turned out, early November when they made their recommendations. So there wasn't a whole lot we could, we could do. There wasn't a whole lot I could do about the politics of literacy until we knew what that task force uh, decided to do. We were waiting on the fall reading scores. Yes. And uh, we finally got the, the detailed fall reading scores in mid-November. And what I've been doing as I've done this series is I've taken a close look at what happened last year uh, with the fall scores and the spring scores and see the changes uh, during the course of the school year. But now we can also look at the fall scores for 2019, maybe draw some comparisons between 2018 2019. Couldn't do any of that until well, uh, just the past couple of weeks as we started to put those numbers together. So, you know, a, a lot of things that we were trying to put together. We also uh, have been pursuing and, and got in mid-November the literacy plans that the districts and the charter schools have to submit to the State Board of Education. So we were able to, to look those over, to look for some trends, looking, focusing on the largest districts where most of the literacy dollars are going, but also looked at some of the schools that really saw big improvements over the 2018-2019 year to get a sense of how they're spending their money. What kind of programs are they doing and what sort of goals are they setting for the future? So we we had all of that kind of coming together really in the past few weeks. Um, so it was an interesting project to put together. But before that, um, maybe some of the most fun stuff that I got to do and some of the most interesting stuff that I got to do was to go out to some of the schools and some of the districts that did see some improvements. Um, the, the, you know, the high growth districts from last school year and get a sense of what are they doing and how are they doing it? I wanted to ask about that because I wanted to give our listeners and our readers a sense of the scope of this project, but it wasn't just that you were sitting on sitting in the office with reams of spreadsheet making phone calls. You actually put a lot of miles on your car this summer and fall, and like you said, went out in the districts, but you looked at, you visited the schools where things were working, uh, where we could maybe isolate and learn for some best practices, and you also talked to some schools that that didn't have as high of a results or return. But give me a sense of the, the scope of the project and the reporting that went into this, especially over the summer and fall. What I did over the, the summer and especially into the fall as we started to look at those reading scores was um, we looked at some districts and, some, and a one charter and that had really large improvements from fall to spring. So statewide, the scores from fall to spring for all students, kindergarten through third grade. The improvement statewide across the board, 90,000 kids, comes to about 17 percentage points. Pretty significant improvement, and that's what you would expect to see over the course of a school year. What I wanted to do when we got those numbers was, well, let's isolate and look at the schools on either end of the spectrum. What I wanted to do, and I reached out to every school district and the one charter school that had improvements of more than 30 percentage points. So a pretty significant improvement on the improvements that we saw statewide. Right. And I also reached out to the, and I believe there were pretty much all charter schools that had 
uh, virtually no growth over the course of the school year. And some really started out high, mm -hmm. really good reading scores. Some started out low and stayed low and, and tried to get a sense of what happened there and why there were, you know, why there was no uh, noticeable improvement over the course of the school year. So going out to talk to some of these high improvement districts, that took me to uh, Bruno Grandview, a, a school district that you've spent some time mm -hmm. with as well. Um, talked to some folks in Cascade, another high growth uh, district, Notice. Um, talked to a principal in the West Bonner uh, School District, a veteran educator who has uh, been involved in this now for decades. Another district where there's been a lot of improvement. And Heritage Academy. Now, that's a charter school you probably remember the name if you've been listening to the podcast over the past few months. Heritage Academy is the charter that's been in the middle of that whole maelstrom over uh, the Charter Commission. Um, this was the school that was kind of singled out in that infamous uh, executive session. I wanted to look at Heritage because Heritage, Heritage's reading scores at the end of last school year, they're still not at the state average, but their improvement was really, really strong. I mean, they, they started at like 25 percentage points below the state average. Very, you know, Tough demographics, real demographic challenges in that charter school. 25 percentage point gap in fall of 2018. By the spring of 2019, they've narrowed that gap to 10 percentage points. So, so big improvements, you know, big narrowing of the gap. And I wanted to find out what they were doing there. Going to these schools, going to some of these uh, schools that have seen real improvement, it was, it was really interesting to talk about the practices, yeah. get, a, get a glimpse of what goes on in these schools, get a glimpse into the kind of the culture uh, of change and culture of improvement. It was really, really eye-opening stuff. And we've talked before about culture, uh, and that involves leadership, that involves being strategic and setting goals. But in, in some cases, and I'm thinking in particular my visit to Bruno Grandview, it's about using data effectively and, and owning the data. Did you encounter some of that in either Bruno Grandview or Cascade or some of these other, I want to call them case study districts that you visited oh, in schools? Definitely. I mean, you mentioned both Bruno Grandview and Cascade. Both are really looking at the data very closely. I think Cascade and the, the superintendents, have, we have a whole wall of data that, that we look at. Um, you know, we both talked to Brian, uh, to uh, Ryan Cantrell, yep. the, uh, the superintendent in, in Bruno Grandview, and he likes to talk about owning the data. Whether I like the numbers or not, these are my school's numbers, these are my district's numbers, I've got to own them, and I've got to do something about them. If I don't like the numbers, i got to do something about them. Um, you know, one of the things that really struck me in Bruno Grandview, and then I saw it again in Notice, is really kind of an all-hands-on-deck approach yeah. to early reading. I was really struck um, when I spent some time in the Grandview Elementary School, um, kind of in the middle of nowhere. It's a very small school, very you know, very remote uh, school district. Spend some time in the afternoon looking at how they do reading instruction and everybody's involved. The, the teachers are involved. One teacher takes on this big class of 37 kids. These are all the kids who are at grade level. And they just say, look, you're gonna work independently. Uh, the teacher's gonna read to a small group, but mostly those kids are reading on their own. They're already reading at grade level. They're you know, they're independent study. And that's kind of crowd control. I mean, Cantrell basically acknowledged as much. I mean, that teacher is not doing much one-on-one -on -one instruction when you've got that many kids. 
But the idea is that that allows other staff to work in small groups with students who need the extra help. And one person who really struck me in that process as I went from room to room and watched what's going on, Dixie Amy is, uh, she's the receptionist at Grandview. She'd been a paraprofessional. Now she's, you know, the administrative assistant. She's the receptionist. Yeah. She's who you see when you walk in the yeah. door. She spends part of the afternoon taking on a small class of kids who need to work on their reading speed, uh, on their fluency. And she has a small group. When I was there, there were three kids in the group. And she has this uh, little bottle of cheap perfume <laughs> on the desk. And when the kids hit their target, and when they hit their targets for fluency, she gives them a little spritz of perfume. And she says that it's the smell of good reading. And I asked her about it after, and she said, yeah, even the boys want it. You know, you know they'll ask me, and they'll remind me if they, if they didn't get the sprayed with perfume. And it was just this little, you know, episode, this little anecdote of, you know, here is somebody who's volunteering to do something that's not really in their job description. Um, you know, she got training to do some training. You know, she got training to help kids in, in fluency and wanted to take it on. Um, I saw the same thing in notice uh, when I walked the hallways and, and noticed one morning small groups. Uh, you know, one small group, uh, kids were ahead of grade level. They were on computers. They were doing more advanced work uh, you know, on reading skills, on language skills. And then you had another group down the hall in, in a small group. They were working with you know, index cards and colored crayon, uh, colored pencils, doing spelling and doing you know word sounds one-on-one -on -one with an instructor, small group with an instructor. Um, and again, that same kind of approach. You know, they make sure that the teachers are all focused in on literacy early in the day. They make sure that the paraprofessionals, the, the assistants, are working with the kids in, in, you know, all in literacy. And, you know, notice is a, a district that's facing some real demographic challenges as well. I mean, this is a, you know, district with some fairly high poverty rates. Uh, a growing number of English language learners. Uh, you know, a lot of those kind of demographic realities that we see um, you know, pose some real challenges to other school districts and other charter schools around the state. Notice has found a way to have some really strong improvements. That's one of the things I love about this series and I love about our job overall is I love going out and visiting schools and districts. And one thing I really enjoy is visiting the smaller the remote districts, and seeing the different hats people wear. It might be a superintendent who, you know, coaches a team or teaches a class or drives a van on a field trip or chaperones the school dance late at night. And I know that happens at, at districts large, small, in between, but going to some of those small districts in particular and seeing the creativity and the way they use resources and the different hats they wear, it's always fun, but it's always fun going out and, and visiting a school because it brings... You know, the policy side of the equation is one thing, to, but to see it in action, I think, is another thing. And we're very fortunate that we are able to do that, to go visit these schools, to meet with the educators, to meet with students and watch lessons play out. It's, it's really cool stuff. And, and as I set out to do this series, as I knew I was going to be talking to teachers and administrators and parents and politicians, I wanted to try to give as complete a picture of what's going on in reading education in Idaho. And there are some things that we found along the way that were, were, were stunning. Yeah. Uh, you know, stunning and not in a good way. Um, when we looked at some of the, the test scores in the Boise School District, um, I drilled down and looked at what happened in the kindergarten uh, 
test scores in Boise. You know, one of the largest districts in the state, uh, a district that's pretty well funded, has you know a lot of tax levy authority that few other school districts around the state has, um, pretty experienced teaching uh, staff. Their kindergarten scores really, really uh, were lackluster last school year. As best as I could count, 14 elementary schools in Boise had kindergarten scores that actually dropped over the course of the school year. That's really eye-opening because that means, uh, yeah, I mean, that means after spending a year uh, in the school environment with their teachers, moving backwards from where they were in the fall, a they, real they, concern. Right, right. They didn't make the progress that they were expected to make over the course of the year. I mean, you know, they're, they're not worse readers than they were in the fall. They just have not grown. And, and you know, in 14 schools, you didn't have that kind of growth going on. And, you know, I talked to administrators in Boise and they said, yeah, we have work to do. And part of the work that they're trying to do this year is use the test, the, the Idaho Reading Indicator, more than they did the past year. Schools are only mandated to give the test a couple of times during the year and, and you know, chronicle the results in the fall and the spring so but that we can see the growth. The but, IRI does have the option to do you know, multiple assessments and tests along the way. And a lot of the schools that I looked at that showed improvement, the, the high growth schools use that test a lot. They administer it a lot and they try to, you know, use the results quickly and in real time and, you know, really check and see how kids are doing across the, the course of the year. Because, I mean, let's face it, a kindergartner who's like five, six years old, we're talking about six months out of their life from fall to spring, a whole lot can change. When you're, when you're a little kid, that's a big chunk of your life and a lot can change in, in a few months. So the schools that have really shown growth, a lot of them have really used that test you know, as you know, a real-time monitor of how students are faring, where are they improving, where are they maybe still needing some extra help. And I heard over and over, you know, schools that did not see improvement feel like they didn't use the test effectively, adequately, and need to try to do more with it. So that was one of the things that kind of jumped out as, as we were doing this. You know, you know, another thing that jumped out is sort of the accountability piece here. Um, yeah. You know, every school district, every charter has to file these literacy plans. And, and as I said, we, as we went through, and there are, there's a lot there. So, you know, it, you know, but something that jumped out at me pretty quickly was as I looked at some of these bigger you know, districts that have had big improvements over the past year, what do they want to do from here? What kind of goals are they setting? A couple of those districts that had real improvements last year, Bliss and, uh, and, and White Pine, uh, came back with, with goals for 2019-2020 that are actually lower than their student performance from a year ago. And, you know, we you know, reached out to those schools to try to figure out why that is. Why would you come up with a goal that's less than, you know, that's lower than your performance from a year ago. It doesn't make sense. And that's kind of what I've wondered about, about when these literacy plans are turned in, are they, are they checked or screened? Do they have to meet certain criteria? Would the state send it back if it wasn't up to snuff? And that doesn't appear to be the case that's at all. That's not how it works. I mean, yeah. the State Board of Education is in a role of collecting these reports. Yeah. And as it was explained to me, the board can go back to a district like a bliss and a white pine and say, you know what, your goals are, are lower than your actual performance from a year ago. Sometimes a district or a charter will say, oh, you're right. Yeah, let's let's fix that. Thanks for the heads up. Other times, uh, 
you know, the school will say, no, we're, we're sticking with what we got because the state board has no uh, authority to say, those goals are inadequate. You've got to do better. You've yeah. got to set a higher goal for yourself. Right. So, you know. Well, you reached out to the and, new and I've reached White... out to Bliss, and I've reached out to White yeah. Pine. I'll have comment from White Pine uh, as we get into that story, which will run on Monday. And you know, it's it's sort of a yeah. This could have been much more of a success story in Bliss and White Pine because they had big improvements in 2018, 2019. Something had to be happening there to get their scores to improve so much over the course of the year. But then you come back and you have these goals that are really they're not really goals at all if you're talking about. Uh, scores that are considerably lower than you were able to uh, to achieve just you know a few months ago, you know. So there's there's that ac- accountability element in the story, um, and also kind of tracking maybe where some of that money went, where some of that twenty six million dollars went. That's all in the story that will run on Monday. I, I think that's really interesting, and I think that that could be interesting for legislators and policymakers because we've sort of talked all along about how as we get closer to the 2020 session, there's a growing group of legislators who want data that justifies the return on investment for the $26 million in literacy funding. And they're going to be curious about the literacy plans. And they're going to be curious about, is this money moving the needle? And those schools that you mentioned, just a couple of isolated small incidents statewide, uh, but that might raise a couple of eyebrows if we're pump- if we're doubling money for the literacy funding and and, and taking thirteen million dollars more from the taxpayers to bring it up to twenty six million, and you guys are comfortable in these specific isolated cases with a goal that's lower than what achievement was before. Why are we doing this? Um, but you well, get into and, the political well, and, side and, and of they, things. We get into the politics of it and what what may uh, unfold in two thousand and twenty. Uh, we get into what's happening right now with the twenty six million. Uh, so let's kind of break yeah. both of those off sure. a little bit. So my takeaway as I look at the $26 million and how it's being spent right now, not really surprising that a lot of that money is going into personnel. It's right. going into adding teachers, adding paraprofessionals, expanding into all-day kindergarten. And that seems to be the common thread, whether we're talking about big districts, small districts, whether we're talking about uh, districts that had you know big gains last year, uh, districts that are trying to improve on some stagnant scores from a year ago. Common thread seems to be putting the money into staff. Mm-hmm. Bodies, you know, boots on the ground, in the classrooms, uh, helping helping kids learn to read. Makes sense. And, and you know, it. we've seen that before. When, when Boise State studied the literacy program a couple of years ago, they found that, you know, about 70% of the money was going into, into staff. Uh, so you wouldn't be terribly surprised to see that again this year. What does strike me, though, is that you know what a Boise or a West Ada can do with you know, $2 million of literacy money, which is more or less what both of them are getting, each, uh, each of them are getting. You can hire a lot of staff with $2 million. You can hire a lot of full-time staff. You can hire coaches. You can hire specialists. You can hire teachers. A lot of these smaller districts and charters are getting maybe ten, fifteen thousand dollars, sometimes even less. You're not going to hire a teacher with fifteen thousand no. dollars. You're going to maybe uh, hire a paraprofessional. You're going to hire some, you know, part-time help, uh, teachers' aides, um, to help your certified teachers, um, you know, and help kind of fill in some of the gaps in in reading instruction. And that's something that I saw in Cascade and something I saw and noticed. 
what, what Cascade does with their paraprofessionals is they have the paras working with the kids who are reading at grade level so the teachers can work with the students who aren't at grade level so that those students are getting help from the most experienced teachers, uh, the most experienced educators in Cascade. Yeah. So anyway, we, we take a, a really hard look at where some of that money is going and we try to look ahead at the politics in 2020 because you and I both know this is going to be an issue before the legislature. We don't know what Governor Little is going to ask for as far as a, a funding request for literacy. We don't know if he's going to pursue either of the recommendations from the task force, whether it's the all-day kindergarten expansion or the accountability measure. The former would have some real dollars attached yeah. to it. I mean, if you're going to do an all-day kindergarten expansion, it's going to cost you money. An accountability piece doesn't really cost you money. Pretty popular concept around the state house, so you know, you know, chances are that that would have an easier uh, way through the legislature than an expansion of all-day kindergarten, because I think you are at a point where legislators are going to say, "Well, we're already doing this. We've already been doing this. We have all-day kindergarten expanding and launching in districts all across the state. How's it going?" What are we seeing right now? Yeah. And kindergarten, like you talked about the scores, kindergarten, particularly the fall kindergarten scores, have been interesting because it's showing that students aren't showing up with the reading or I suppose the pre-reading skills that they need uh, when they arrive on the first day of kindergarten. And so we've known that the latest batch of fall scores sort of reinforced that, that it's you know gotten worse, if anything, from the year before. Uh, so kindergarten's interesting, but the whole concept for Governor Brad Little is this K-3. He's focused mm -hmm. in on K-3 and reading is this foundational skill. And if you're not reading at grade level by third grade, he is convinced and other state officials are convinced uh, that they will be behind in the struggle for the rest of their academic career. Right. And one of the things that I did in this series was I, there were two questions that I kept asking, whether I was talking to a parent or talking to a teacher or an administrator or the governor. Um, one was the question of this emphasis, this focus on K-3, this focus on early reading, because there's an opportunity cost when you do something like that. You're yeah. putting all this money and all this focus on early reading, that's resources that you don't get to use uh, for other things. Say math. High school math, yeah. exactly. And that was kind of the example I kept using, because you could look at the high school math scores and say, we've got a problem there, too. And you could make a pretty compelling argument for a math initiative in high schools. And I kind of asked the governor, well, what about that? And he said, look, I'm, I'm all for STEM and I'm all for college and career readiness, but I've got to get kids reading first. If we, if we don't get kids reading at grade level by third grade, they're not going to be able to do any of this other stuff. It is just so foundational. We've got to start there. And that's something I heard over and over from folks in the field. Um, I talked to a Boise parent who was a former math teacher. Uh, her, her kid's in kindergarten right now. And I asked her, and, and she said, look, the former math teacher in me is just screaming, well, we got, we got to teach kids about numeracy. But as she put it, kids have to know how to read if they're going to do word problems. They have to know how to read to do most everything else. So yes, reading does have to come first. Um, so I heard that over and over from, from a lot of folks. Did hear concerns that, yeah, we do need to focus on math too, but you know, by and large people are saying, yeah, we, we've got to get this reading thing right and we've got to get it figured out. That was one question I kept asking. Yeah. The other one I kept asking was, 
okay, what gets in the way? What's the biggest obstacle? And you know, you, you hear some things that are fairly you know common themes and probably not terribly surprising. Well, you know, we could always use more time in the classroom. There's never enough time, even if we expand to all day kindergarten. It never feels like we have enough time with the kids. We could always use more resources. We could always use you know more more staff, more you know, you know more materials. Um, but a lot of folks talking about you know you need to get parents involved. You need to make sure parents know how to be involved because sometimes parents really want to help, but they may not know the best way to support what's going on in the classrooms. Um, yeah, but when I asked Governor Little about well, what do you think is the biggest obstacle? He said, I think we need to get the word to parents how this is working and, and how is it working in their schools. These reading scores are really important as a yardstick. They're really important as an accountability measure. It's really important for parents and taxpayers to know what's happening in their local district and to, to really be focused in on how are kids doing on this. So That might be a not-so-thinly-veiled endorsement of the accountability plan that uses the K-3 IRI Yeah, scores. I definitely get the feeling that he's ready for that. And, and when I talked to Debbie Critchfield, the president of the state board, she you know, obviously should, she supported this in the task force as she co-chaired the task force. And as we talked about the need for accountability, the need for an accountability measure, she said, you know, look, we may not be able to control what sort of goals these schools set when they turn in a, a literacy plan, but the accountability really has to come with these test scores, and it really has to come with comparing test scores, comparing growth, you know, among districts with similar demographics. Yeah. So the whole idea of this accountability metric. So You're not going to compare West Data to Notice, but we're talking about comparing schools with similar demographic characteristics, so it's a useful, instructive comparison, exactly. and a more fair comparison. Exactly, and, and that's kind of where it's going. So, you know, I, you know, I would think that an accountability proposal would would have a lot more traction in the legislature. I don't know how an all-day kindergarten proposal will go because I don't know how much money you would try to put into it when there's a lot of money, uh, a lot of demands on limited resources right now. So anyway, long story short, that's kind of uh, an overview of what will be uh, rolling out here in the next few days, uh, starting on Monday, going through Thursday. And I'd urge you, you know, since you've listened to me rattle on about this for a half an hour, as you read these stories, um, let me know what you think. Um, send me an email. Uh, make a comment on our Facebook page. Uh, what jumped out at you as you read this? Uh, what did you want to know more about? What do you think we maybe should focus on down the road? Because this issue isn't going away. This debate isn't going away. We're going to spend a lot of time looking at this at the legislature, uh, following the, the politics of this, but also following what's going on in the classroom. This is um, not just a project that I'm looking at this year, it's an ongoing coverage area because this is such an ongoing emphasis in, in Idaho education. It's basically the, the state's top education initiative at, at this point, the governor setting the tone. But yeah, Monday, December 16th is the day we're going to roll it out. IdahoEdNews.org will be able to find each piece. There's going to be multiple installments each day, yeah. like you said. Two, two stories a day for the next, uh, over the course of the four days. Monday through Thursday, you're going to want to check every day, IdahoEdNews.org. And, and particularly, I know we would love to hear from parents and educators uh, who are reading this, who have ideas, like you said, about what they like, uh, what follow-up questions they have, what they would like to see, what yeah. their experience has been. So that's who we want to hear from. But 
You've talked to everybody. You mentioned you talked to the governor. You talked to State Board of Education President Debbie Critchfield. I know Superintendent of Public Instruction Sherry Ibarra. Uh, sat for an interview with you and her perspective is in there. Administrators, educators, parents from throughout the state. Uh, you cast a wide net. I've read a little more than half of it at this point and I'm excited uh, to watch it come together and to watch it uh, be unveiled to the world. It's like binge watching. You know, yeah. you know, there's a lot there. So you yeah. get maybe one season at a time. And yeah, you'll you'll get a break for two weeks and then we'll really get busy. But this week we had one other major news story we had planned just to have the show about unveiling the Literacy Project, but got an announcement Thursday from the State Board of Education and the four college and university, the four university presidents, having to do with tuition. Kevin, you yeah, and I were we, both we there. We were both there, and you know, this is kind of the emergency podcast segment of this week's podcast because this was such a an important announcement that we kind of sat there Thursday afternoon and said we. We've got to talk about it a little yeah. bit. We've, we've got to devote a segment of the podcast to what is perhaps an unprecedented move in, in Idaho higher education. We're going to have a tuition freeze next school year Correct. for in-state undergraduate students uh, attending the four major, um, the four-year institutions, University of Idaho, Boise State University, Idaho State University, Lewis Clark State College. Tuition will remain frozen for the next year. And, you know, I got to fess up right away, and I'm going to do some more reporting on this next week, but um, got to be upfront here. A couple of weeks ago, I did a, a radio segment with uh, with our friend Gemma Gaudet over at Boise State Public Radio. She wanted to drill down on the prospect of a tuition freeze, and I said, I don't see how it can happen. So I <laughs> got that one completely wrong because, you know, while I was, you know, making that uh, prediction... University presidents have been talking behind the scenes about this for months. Yeah. Um, going back to April when the state board did approve a tuition increase for this current school year, the conversations began pretty soon after as new presidents started to come into the fold, Marlene Trump and, and C. Scott Green. The four presidents, who are all fairly new presidents, all started to talk about, can we make this happen? Can we pull this off? And they you know, had this joint announcement on Thursday afternoon, as I said, uh, it could be unprecedented. You know, the state board only has tuition records going back 43 years. Yes, yeah, right, right. And there's been an increase every year of those 43 years. So this may have never happened before. We know it hasn't happened in, in the past 43 years. Um, and it's a pretty significant um, financial hit for the four universities. They collected $16 million in additional revenue this school year from just the tuition increase. So, you know, you, you kind of play that along. If you'd had a similar increase go into effect next school year, the four institutions would get, you know, about you know, $16 million to share. So it's, it's not an insignificant amount of money for the universities that are already facing considerable budget pressure. Well, that, that's what I'm interested in. Yesterday, on Thursday, when we were at the, announce, when the, we were at the announcement, they were very clear, in-state resident tuition freeze for next year. But they didn't provide the details. Um, and I don't know if that's because the details haven't been worked out or they just weren't prepared to share them on Thursday. But I'm interested in more about how it's specifically going to work, foregoing the, what, like what you said, approximately $16 million in new revenue that a tuition increase brought last year, coupled with this fact that universities have to absorb and have to play by the rules 
uh, that Governor Little set for 2% base budget reductions next year, throw University of Idaho into the mix, which has some yeah. outstanding financial over challenges over and above, over and above that. Demanded by the governor. Yes. Scott Green basically said yesterday that the university has not balanced its budget in recent years, but plans to do so going forward. And so I'm interested but he said in... it's going to hurt. It, he did say it's going to hurt, but sure. I'm interested in how are they going to do this, also not knowing what level of funding the legislature will appropriate for 2020, 2021. I just want to know a little bit more about the details because the financial side of it caught me off guard and surprised and, me. And that was the question that I asked that the four presidents don't really want to answer right now. They kind of looked at each other and nobody really uh, jumped to the microphone to answer it. These four presidents are going to have to go before the legislature next month. Yeah. And they're going to have to make their budget uh, presentations or enough to make their budget requests. It will be very interesting to see how those budget presentations go, how that budget process goes, because, you know, Kevin Satterley, the president at ISU, he did most of the talking on right. behalf of the four presidents, and he he stated it pretty plainly, and the numbers stated pretty plainly, so he wasn't breaking new ground here, but he was very clear to anybody listening Thursday you fund universities through two methods. Oh, you yeah. fund them through what parents and kids cough up in the form of tuition, or you fund it through what you get from the state legislature uh, from tax dollars. And the trend line in Idaho, like in many other states, is uh, is very clear. Uh, you did a whole shift, series on the, this. Yes. You know, you start me off on another series. The shift away from taxpayer support for higher education, it's not unique to Idaho, but it is profound and it has been going on over these 43 years that we've been seeing these tuition increases. So that's the big question. How will the legislature respond to budget requests from the universities? Now that the universities have said, we're going to try to you know, give students and parents a year of of a break in terms of tuition, foregoing millions of dollars in new tuition revenue in the process. Will the legislature step in? How will they respond? Because over the past few years, higher ed has not fared as well in the budget process as K-12. Uh, you know, the ever-shrinking yeah. share of the state budget going to higher education, another trend we've seen you know, inexorably when you look at the numbers over, over the years. The politics of this is really interesting. You know, you know, as I, you know, at one point in the press conference, you know, Andrew, Andrew Scoggin from the state board said, you know, this was never about politics, as the university presidents talked about the freeze. And that, that may be so. But the budget is about politics. And, and it's going to be really interesting to see the politics of this uh, going forward at, at, a, at a time where universities are facing some budget crunches, um, some really acute. You think about U of I. And at a time when universities are facing some more um, ideological pressure, uh, you know, there's been a lot of pushback, obviously, against Boise State and diversity programs and inclusion programs. That's still going to be uh, something that clouds the debate over higher education this next legislative session. So the timing, the political implications, it's fascinating stuff. So, yeah, we had to talk about it uh, in the podcast. Yeah, I think higher ed just became a lot more interesting of a of a beat for us. But unless I'm missing something, we still haven't heard how all of the universities plan to deal with the 2% budget cuts. I don't think I've heard how the one with the blue football field is going to handle that. 
Um, so well, all I can tell you is that I'm, I'm efforting and, and work is apparently going on. So as we record this podcast on Friday morning, um, what I'd heard from the Department of uh, Division of Finance, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, DFM, DFM, the governor's, <laughs> the governor's budget guys, yeah, uh, is that they're working with Boise State on a plan to implement their cuts, which are a million dollars this year and probably more than uh, two million the following. Um, no plan in place, and they may have a plan in place uh, as early as Friday. I've not seen anything to this point. We're, we're, we're watching it closely. What the universities and the colleges have been talking about doing is a variety of personnel. We have, moves. yeah, leaving positions dark. Uh, Hiring freezes, furloughs, you name it. Anything to kind of, you know, ratchet down the payroll costs a little bit because, you know, that's where a lot of the money is is tied up in a university. Um so we'll see. We'll see what Boise State comes up with. Uh, we're watching it closely. Uh, we will um, have something at idaho8news.org when we've got some answers. All right. That, more work for us to be, uh, for us to oh, handle yeah, for well. sure. Uh, but I think that's a full podcast. Uh, we got a lot, a oh, lot yeah. covered yeah, this we, week. We've been talking for a while here. Uh, but we're going to come back next week. Uh, at this point, we anticipate one more final podcast of 2019. It will be next week. We're going to get into a little bit of the year that was. We're going to look ahead. We may just have some breaking news to tell you about next week. Then we'll take Christmas off and be back January 3rd to get you ready for the 2020 legislative session. We expect education issues to be a big part of it. We expect a tight budget situation as well. And so there's going to be... A lot of competition for scarce resources. Yeah, which will make our job more interesting as we try to sort out where the money's going and how the politics of K-12 and higher ed play out. All right, be sure to follow the homepage, www.idahoednews.org. All next week, each morning, you can catch a new installment of Kevin's Literacy Series. Be sure to follow us on Twitter. That's at Idaho Ed News. We'll have links to the big literacy series, all our breaking news. We'll also live-tweet the big meetings from the legislative session, so that's a good way to stay up with the latest education policy developments. But we, speaking of education policy, we have a lot of fun breaking down this ever-complicated intersection of education politics and education policy each and every week on the Extra Credit Podcast. I'm Clark. I'm Kevin. Have a good week.